afternoon, commissioners. It's my pleasure to um, present this resolution to you today. Uh, you have before you, as the president announced, a resolution for your approval that allows Laguna Honda Hospital to apply for recertification as a CMS provider. As you know, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services in May of this year agreed to our request to fund necessary Medicaid and Medicare services to all residents requiring skilled nursing level through March 19th of 2024. However, the pause of involuntary transfers of Laguna Honda residents was only extended until September 19th of 2023. We have and we continue to do everything we can to prepare our hospital and our teams for successful recertification. Mm. Our goal is to apply for and secure recertification before the September 19th date. We continue to make significant strides in making the necessary changes that are required for recertification in CMS programs. The 90-day CMS monitoring survey number three took place in June of this year and resulted in 33 findings of noncompliance. This is a significant improvement from the first 90-day survey in November, December of last year, which had a 124 findings of insufficient operations. Our goal is to have all action plan milestones completed by September 1st, so that Laguna Honda is recertification ready. That includes uh, all milestones related to the monitoring survey number three and mon milestones related to non-monitoring survey uh, statements of deficiencies, also known as 2567s, that are routinely uh, received uh, due to regular operations. The proposed action plan for monitoring survey number three has approximately 290 milestones and the proposed action plan for the non-monitoring survey findings has approximately 85 milestones. Uh, these are still proposed uh, as we are awaiting final approval uh, from CMS and CDPH. Uh, they have given us initial comments uh, asking us to make some minor corrections to our first submission, which uh, we uh, are submitting to them again and hope to have the final approval. Nonetheless, we've, we've started working on the milestones in anticipation that they will be approved. Um, accordingly, all of the milestones are underway. Uh, it's also important to note that these milestones build upon all the improvement work going back to monitoring survey number one, uh, the root cause analysis that was done in January, uh, and the initial 500 milestones that uh, came over uh, the last six months. Again, our goal is to have all action plan milestones completed by September 1st, so that Laguna Honda is ready for recertification. Uh, on behalf of all of the team working at Laguna, I want to thank you, uh, this commission, for your ongoing support over the last year. We could not be in the place where we are today without your support and your, and your advocacy. Uh, please let me know uh, at the appropriate time, and I'm happy to answer any questions related to this resolution. Thank you, Mr. Pickens. Before we go to public comment, we do need a motion to approve, and I'd like to yield to the chair of the Laguna Honda Hospital uh, Joint Conference Committee who may want to move the resolution. Thank you. I 
appreciate that, uh, President Bernal, and I would like to move uh, approval of the resolution uh, to apply for recertification for Laguna Honda Hospital. Great. Do we have a second? Second. All right. Commissioner Shadow seconds. Uh, Sec uh, Secretary Morowitz, public comment, please. Yes. Is there any public comment on this item in the room? All right. Seeing none. Um, any folks on the line who've received accommodations? Um, please press star three. I also want to note that we um, obviously had audio problems and um, I will ask the commission to go back and do a general public comment at a later time so that the folks on the line have an opportunity to comment on that and the minutes. Um, but so um, Jeanette, please unmute the caller with the raised hand. Hi, this is Patrick Manapshaw, code WW, can you hear me? Yes, please begin. I hope you will go back to the start of the public agenda. This is item number five, way out of order. The second to the last further resolved clause in this proposed resolution is concerning. When it says the commission uh, approves the Laguna Honda applying to become recertified as a dual certified distinct part SNF and distinct part nursing facility. This commission should explain publicly how a quote unquote dual certified distinct part SNF and nursing facility end quote may be different from a distinct part NF or as a distinct part SNF. Laguna Honda's state license is specifically for 759-bed skilled nursing facility. Well, Laguna Honda submit this application for recertification immediately after adoption of this resolution today. Alternatively, will the application actually be submitted by September 1st or Will it have to be submitted after the expected fourth 90-day monitoring survey that's tentatively scheduled for the middle of September? In either case, this commission should tell members of the public today what the actual planned date is that the application will actually be submitted. Is there a plan to split SNF care versus nursing facility care at Laguna Honda or use Laguna Honda's beds for non-SNF and non-nursing facility purposes? Is there still a plan to put the SNF patient cohort in one Laguna Honda patient tower and the behavioral health patient cohort in the second patient power. We need some answers to these questions before you vote on passing this resolution. And you really need to return to the uh, published meeting agenda. I'm shocked that you are taking it so out of order. Uh, and other members of the public may not be aware of this switcheroo with the agenda. Thank you. All right. Uh, that was the only um, hand up with the accommodation. Is There's another person on the line. Would you like to make public comment? All right. 
Um, that's the only public comment we have then. All right, commissioners, do we have questions or comments for Mr. Pickens? Commissioner Guillermo. Uh, I just want to um, be on record and commending uh, Mr. Pickens and the whole of Laguna Honda Hospital staff and management uh, for getting us to the point uh, where we are able to confidently uh, apply for recertification uh, uh, in a hopefully timely fashion uh, to meet the, uh, the concerns about uh, funding and uh, relocation. So I, um, but you know, having said that, I do uh, want to make sure that we, that you understand how supportive we have been uh, of uh, all of the efforts over a year now, uh, and uh, particularly um, for the staff that we don't get to see uh, how hard they've worked and uh, how difficult it's been under these circumstances. And so again, uh, holy support uh, the application for recertification uh, and wish you all the best of luck in preparing it. Thank you. Commissioner Chow. Uh, yes, and um, th thank you, Mr. Pickens, for uh, all the work that uh, you have done over these uh, years. And I think it's shown not just simply from the number of milestones, but the severity of the uh, uh, citations uh, from uh, the surveys. Uh, if I recall, the first survey had a large number that was uh, really in the must-do uh, category, and and, uh, and and now it looks like maybe there's actually only one or two out of the uh, uh, thirty-some-odd uh, surveys. So that uh, the efforts that you put in over this period of time have uh, uh, shown itself now in uh, the duplicative uh, survey process from number one and number three to be a really uh, uh, positive uh, to allow us to uh, move forward on the resolution. Uh, we, we know that the time that you will take in order to, uh, I, I think you've already reported to us that application has already been sort of uh, uh, created and, and now you're all really pleased that if we get a uh, sign off from the uh, feds that your corrective action plans are going to be uh, acceptable, which sounds like uh, you feel that it will be, that uh, uh, we will be uh, applying for this before the September 19th deadline. Um, I, I do think that uh, uh, perhaps we should understand because this is such a complex series of, uh, of re, uh, well, resolves because each of these look like we're not just asking for recertification, but asking for recognition on Medicaid and Medicare and uh, whether we're going to be a distinct part, NF or SNF or both. Uh, perhaps you could explain uh, what we are actually going to need to do to get us back to where we were. Right. Thank, thank you for that question. Um, so we are applying basically to make Laguna whole as if it were before the decertification happened. So the SNF is distinct part skilled nursing facility. The NF is distinct part nursing facility. Within the Medicaid world, there are people who have skilled nursing needs, and there are people who have nursing needs that are not skilled, and they're not, who are also known as custodial. And then there are people who may have had those needs when they were first admitted, admitted uh, but then uh, uh, improved in their function and no longer have either of those needs. And so those are the ones who we would typically be discharging to the community. 
but because we also, Laguna is also licensed as an acute care hospital because of the 11 acute beds, uh, any skilled nursing level, be it SNF or NIF, uh, is being done as a distinct part because of those acute care beds. If those acute care beds were not at Laguna, we could apply just as a SNF or a NIF or both. But because we have the acute care, we're applying as a distinct part of an acute care hospital. I hope that makes sense. So the acute care hospital section is not under uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the cloud, I, I would say, that it, it still remains licensed as an acute care hospital. That is correct. Through all this. And so that's why it's not part of the resolution. We don't have to apply for acute care. That is correct. Uh, and, and, and that, uh, uh, therefore, each of these are kind of required in order to get us back to where we were. Uh, of course, it doesn't speak to uh, the whole issue of numbers of beds, because that's different from licensure, right? Correct. So uh, I think, as you've told us, after we get the license back, then we're going to say, and of course, it's all the beds that we've had. Absolutely, that uh, is our goal. And then, and then we could work on uh, if the uh, feds did not agree with that. Uh, all the all, all the uh, a new task, which is to see that we get a restoration of the beds. Also, that is correct. That we're talking about. Okay, so this is sort of the first step to get relicensed like we were before. Uh, and to have the right uh, Medicare and Medicaid type of recognition so that uh, we are where we were before the decertification. Correct. Okay. Thank you. That's, that's helpful to me. The commissioners? All right. I would just like to say that in, in anticipation of our approval of this, uh, of this resolution, um, really, it is a statement of this commission's commitment to the residents of Laguna Honda, but it's also a statement of gratitude and pride in all of the hard work that every single one of the staff members at Laguna Honda has done to get us to this point. They've approached every single uh, milestone and every single new task with professionalism and that same commitment to providing excellent care to all the residents. We could not be more grateful to all of the staff, to our labor union partners, um, as well as to you, Mr. Pickens. And I know that Dr. Baba, who's pinch hitting for uh, Dr. Colfax today, has been deeply involved in all of this as well. So thanks to you both, and thanks to everybody who's been involved in this very, very long process that's been a long time coming. And uh, we're very proud to uh, cast our vote for this resolution. Thank you very much. Commissioner, seeing no other comments, uh, all those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? All right, the resolution passes. Thank you, Mr. Pickens. Uh, um, Commissioner. We apologize for the mix-up on the agenda. There have, been, uh, there, there have been two different versions around, and the m version that people may have been working off of, particularly members of the public, um, was, was not in the same order that we proceeded. So we will go back quickly to offer opportunities for public comment both on the minutes and then general public comment again. So if there's anybody um, here in the chamber or on the phone who would like to make comment first on the minutes, uh, we'll take those comments and then we will move into general public comment for anyone who may have been missed. Great, so we'll uh, start with anyone in the room who would like to um, make comment on the minutes. This is item two. All right, so um, I see a hand for the minutes. Um, Jeanette, please unmute Mr. Manette Shaw. 
Thank you, uh, thank you, Mr. Marwick. These minutes are deficient and misleading. Mr. Pickens commented extensively at the commission's July 18th meeting about Laguna Honda's medical director recruitment reduced here in these minutes to reporting merely, quote, a possible secondary employment issue, end quote. Issues are, 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 your choice of using issues is creepy. What you mean is a problem. Pickens follows on July 18th, his current practice involves part-time employment and support-up duties for medical directors at other skilled nursing facilities. That's complete nonsense. Pickens lacks real long-term care experience. Laguna Honda is not a 100-bed typical nursing home. It's a uniquely complex 780-bed facility having a broad range of patient acuity. I, idly comparing other SNFs won't enlighten Pickens about Laguna Honda's medical director position, which should be a full-time job, given all of Laguna Honda's regulatory problems needing overdue expert attention. LHH deserves a board-certified medical director who will advocate strongly as an MD for patients and for compliance with complex federal regulations rather than seeking a mindless, obedient toady for the flow project. Find someone with the background credentials and experience to handle that position. They'll be stepping into a fiery furnace. Pickens' playbook appears to have a very limited number of pages. It's disappointing, but perhaps not too surprising, that all lower Laguna Honda has been recruiting to fill this position since February 11th, that there appears to have been two candidates that meet the minimum required qualifications including being board certified in post-acute long-term care medicine, are a Cal TCM member and have three years of managerial and supervisory experience in a skilled nursing facility with, without having- Time is up, Mr. Manetso. Thank you, that's the only public comment on the minutes. All right, and then as stated before, we'll go into general public comment for anyone who may have missed the opportunity to make a comment. Yes, and so Jeanette, please unmute Mr. Manetshaw again. Thank you. During this public comment, I'm addressing an issue that is not on today's agenda. Don't cut me off. During past health commission meetings, Roland Pickens stated that some section or division or other within SFTTH and or SF uh, Health Network are conducting a study regarding expanding behavioral health beds in San Francisco. 
Is that working group meetings open to the public? How often do they meet? And if they're not public meetings, why not? Per Pickens' previous statements during commission open session meetings, that work group is reportedly studying and considering whether to use space at Laguna Honda Hospital by placing separate cohorts of patients in Laguna Honda's two patient towers, traditional SNP patient in one tower and behavioral health patients in the other tower. Is that plot still being considered actively? Has that work group issued a report yet? Will a report be presented in open session to the health commission or to some other health commission subcommittee? What other uh, governing body within the health commission is uh, being the sponsor of that study and when will the public find out about it? After you rearrange beds on the Titanic and beds at Laguna Honda, you need to come clean with this, commissioners. I'm talking to you, Commissioner Bernal. Thank you. Okay, please mute. That's the only public comment on that. All right, getting back on track with our agenda, we'll go to the director's report. Uh, we have Dr. Navina Baba, Deputy Director of Health. Dr. Baba. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, commissioners. Navina Baba, Deputy Director. Um, I will just give you um, highlight a couple items in the director's report. Um, one, I wanted to highlight the fact that um, the home health um, had real relicensing survey and did excellent during it. Um, it was a survey that was done over seven days, so fairly extensive, but there were only three minor deficiencies found, which um, really is a tribute to our home health program. Um, and they were commended for their ability to meet the needs of patients even throughout the pandemic, um, including supporting patients who were uninsured and had limited resources. Um, another item that was related that was not mentioned is that our 4A SNF at ZSFG had a um, revisit from CMS. As you recall, CDPH came out a couple months ago and did a survey, and this was a follow-up survey from CMS. They also got an excellent um, recommendation and um, relicensing or um, resurvey from CMS. Um, so congratulations to both of those teams. Um, the other thing I wanted to um, call attention to is that our population health division um, is working um, with um, a, a um, film and culture um, education product to produce a short documentary about um, the COVID response that really focuses on the community efforts during the COVID response. Um, I saw a preview of this and it was really wonderful to see all the community um, out as well as to see the documentary and see, um, again, relive that experience of the community coming together to really um, protect those that were being impacted by COVID. So this is the official launch um, of this film and there will be three um, screenings throughout San Francisco and would urge people to see it. Um, really to support the community and celebrate them and all the work that they've done. Um, one of the other items that I will talk about is that ZSFG um, got an additional star from CMS. 
um, and this is really something to celebrate. Um, in general, achieving an extra star from CMS is very hard for safety, safety net hospitals to do um, because um, they're not quite as well funded and the patients are very complex. Um, but ZSFG managed to do this by um, you know, um, highlighting um, several things that they have done effectively, including lower than expected death rates across many conditions. Um, including um, a trauma hospital that handles very high volume of patients with life-threatening conditions. Um, the care experience has been exceptional at ZSFG. Um, and it's above the mean for cleanliness, overall hospital experience, and a willingness to recommend it as a hospital. Um, safety of care, um, ZSFG has scored better than the national mean for low infection rates. Um, and it has also reduced the spread of infection. And then timely and effective care with almost 99.9% .9 of staff vaccinated for COVID. Um, and CMS noted the hospital's ability to keep staff healthy um, was one of the other reasons it was um, uh, rated with an extra start. So really wanted to just congratulate G ZSFG and that entire team. It was a very well-deserved star and I'm really um, grateful to all the work that they do. And then finally, I'll end um, director's report with a COVID update. Um, I'm sure that you have all seen that there is a, a probably a national uptick and um, a state uptick. And we are seeing a, a local uptick um, in wastewater um, results. Our team, our disease control team does um, monitor the sewer coronavirus alert network and has seen um, those um, increasing rates. The rates are still much lower than what we have seen in prior years. Um, however, given this, um, and especially during the summertime when people are gathering and there's more travel, we are um, getting the message out that if you have not gotten your, your bivalent booster, you should do so. Um, those over 65 or who are immunocompromised may be also um, eligible for a second booster, so they should check with their doctor um, and then maintain, um, you know, some of, if you are concerned about COVID, to maintain some of the things that we've all talked about throughout the pandemic, including masking, um, if you are particularly vulnerable, um, maybe um, avoiding crowded areas, um, and then if you do get sick um, and are eligible, um, talking to your doctor about medications. Um, so um, happy to answer any questions around director's report. Secretary Moritz, do we have public comment? Uh, hi, folks. We are on uh, item four, the director's report. Um, I see one hand. Uh, Janet, please unmute Mr. Manetchal. Uh, excuse me. Sorry. Uh, the director's report, Ms. Bob had just presented, stated in the written background file posted online, that the third, quote, 90-day monitoring survey, end quote, and another non-monitoring survey, both conducted during June, identified approximately 290 additional monitoring survey milestones plus 85 non-monitoring survey milestones that total a combined 275 additional milestones after the May 13, 2023 deadline. Those new 75 milestones were reportedly must be accomplished by September 1st, ostensibly in the now one month period between today, August 1st, and September 1st. This doesn't bode well for the recertification application being submitted to sometime in, quote, the summer, end quote, 
It has been vaguely promised for a long time. I noticed that application hasn't been submitted by today. During this commission's June 20th meeting, Pickens stated Laguna had initially 320 action plan milestones, which mushroomed to over 520 milestones by the time all milestones were to have been completed by May 13th. Now, Laguna Hunt is back up to having almost 400 more milestones to fix. And importantly, and importantly, demonstrate that those milestones are being sustained. Release the root cause analysis reports number five and number six. After all, the QIE's sixth monitoring report dated July 10th stated on page one that RCA 5 addressed for addressed form 2567 survey findings from the June 5th to June 9th 90-day monitoring survey and RCA number six addressed the form 2567 findings from three count them three complaint related surveys conducted between March 13th and March 17th and other surveys involving complaints on April 4th and April 19th. You, you need to release- Your time is up, Mr. Manetchaw. Jeanette, please mute him. Um, I wanna make sure there was no public comment in the room. Okay, then that is the, all the public comment we have on this item. Commissioners, comments or questions on the director's report? Vice President Green. Well, thank you for all the encouraging things in the report, and I think it is so wonderful that this star has been awarded. And from my understanding of the JCC, the star award is based on data from a few years ago. And some of that may have been during the pandemic, but most importantly, there have been so many uh, uh, steps that the staff, at, uh, the general has taken to constantly improve. And the statistics we've seen recently on some of the parameters that go into the star rating continue to be better and better. So I wouldn't be a bit surprised if we gain one more star the next time, because there is this lag. So it's, it's very exciting we got this one. And I think we probably feel based on what we see that there are more stars to come. So please extend our uh, gratitude to everyone there. It's, it's a remarkable institution that deserves five stars as far as we're concerned. Yes, I agree wholeheartedly with Vice President Green. Just the other quick comment is when the Heart of Access uh, documentary is screened, we'd love to know when and where that's happening. So if we could share, if uh, Secretary Moritz could find that out for us and we'll, we'll see if we can't uh, participate in that, that would be great. All right, seeing no other comments or questions on the director's report, we have already uh, voted on the resolution regarding Re Laguna Honda Hospital recertification. Now we'll move on to item six and we're back on track for the Health Information Technology Quarterly Review. Welcome our Chief Information Officer, Eric Raffin. Good afternoon, President Bernal, Commissioners, Secretary Morowitz, Direct, Deputy Director Baba, Eric Raffin, Chief Information Officer. Uh, it's my pleasure to deliver our quarterly uh, update from the DPHIT division. Uh, next slide, please. 
So today's update will come in three parts. Um, we're going to revisit a topic I introduced the last time. I provided an update on California's data exchange framework. And then we'll dive in and celebrate uh, the launch of the Behavioral Health Services EPIC project and where that's headed over the course of the next several months. And then, as we usually do, we will address um, uh, how we're doing with our EPIC project finances as we've wrapped up uh, the most recent fiscal year. Next slide, please. Okay. The data exchange framework is a result of the passage of AB 133 in July of 2021. And what it does is, is it establishes a framework um, per the vision of the program for every Californian and all of the health and human services providers and organizations that care and serve those individuals um, to have timely access to usable information, usable electronic information that, that ultimately improves the service provided as well as improving the well-being of those being served. It is a very lofty vision, but I want to point out that it doesn't just say healthcare information. It says human services information. And that's really important because the state has never really taken on both areas uh, and made a commitment to creating a data exchange environment where we can actually find a way to share both health and human services information across all health care and human services functions and entities and agencies and health systems um, across California. Um, the data exchange framework is housed within the California Health and Human Services Agency in the Center for Data Innovation and Insights, or CDII for short. Um, that's important because CHHS is where the three major arms of health and human services are housed, being the Department of Public Health, the Department of Healthcare Services, and the Department of Social Services. So the CDII organization sits right there in the top reporting to the Secretary for Health and Human Services and that agency in the state. So there's a, it's a very high level program. We were required, as were all healthcare organizations in California, to sign the state's new data sharing agreement um, uh, as part of the new data exchange framework. We did so in February of this year. Um, only healthcare organizations were required to sign. Um, human services organizations, public health jurisdictions were not required um, in the law as mandatory signatories. There are many signatories um, in place already, and so we're looking forward to what comes next. And what comes next is supposed to be information exchange uh, by January of 2024. Uh, the good news is, is that all, almost all healthcare organizations in California um, are participating in data exchange already. And I've shared uh, uh, some statistics to your commission in the past about how, since we've been on Epic, we are, are transacting millions of records. Some records uh, are a result of us querying um, all of the healthcare organizations across the country to share information for folks that we uh, co-manage. Um, and then sometimes we are responding to queries from other healthcare organizations who are also co-managing people we serve. Um, so again, the, the biggest challenge um, I don't think will be uh, DPH uh, being in compliance with the data exchange framework program. It will be how will human services organizations be able to share information. Um, my advocacy so far, um, I served on the data sharing agreement um, 
subcommittee for the state and now serve on the policy and procedure committee. So I've tried to be very involved uh, as a lot of times safety net organizations are not terribly well represented, uh, but we've tried to make our case strongly because we actually already do um, in our Epic environment today include some social services information, specifically from uh, the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing. And in the next several months, we will also be onboarding into a program um, called Unite Us, uh, which you may have heard of, but is an online community resource directory that will ultimately be reachable through EPIC and provide closed loop referrals to community-based organizations. So imagine a healthcare provider being able to open and complete a referral and then be able to track if a contact was made with the program uh, that that provider referred a patient to. So it's really exciting um, and we're hoping that the state uh, will get very serious about how to open up the human services systems so that we can have meaningful exchange between health and human services. Next slide, please. So a handful of benefits beyond the types of information exchange we have today that may uh, be closer and easier for us to realize as a result of this data exchange framework uh, would be first and foremost, uh, developing a more automated relationship with the San Francisco Health Plan, who obviously is an important partner of ours. And we believe that there may be some opportunities to automate the way that we share information with the health plan versus a little bit more of a manual process we use, we use today, which is taking big bundles of information and securely um, uh, sharing those big bundles of information. Um, in the type of data exchange that's envisioned by the state, the information would flow more episodically. As the data becomes available, you don't have to wait for the month to end or a quarter to end. You would simply just receive the information uh, that we establish. So that is a possibility. Um, there are also some really interesting um, opportunities with emergency medical services. So emergency medical services providers, so ambulance providers, paramedics, they use the equivalent of an electronic health record. It's called a PCR or pre-hospital care record. And there is a tool that was developed in part of a federal pilot um, in San Diego and in a handful of other municipalities around the country several years ago that allows there to be information exchange uh, when paramedics arrive on the scene uh, of a, a medical emergency to be able to look up the patient's information and be able to query the same networks that we use today uh, to, to exchange healthcare information and en route to the hospital and enables the paramedic to transmit a report that gets filed into the EHR's uh, emergency department system. So in our case, directly into the ASAP product, ASAP as it's called in EPIC, um, from the ambulance. Um, this is in place in a number of counties in Central California and San Diego, and we see an opportunity there um, uh, as uh, we learn more about what the data exchange framework has in store for us. I've mentioned uh, what we'd like to do and like to see with regard to more human or social services organizations and data exchange. We're looking forward to that. And last but certainly not least, whenever we talk about expanding uh, the exchange of data, there's always a door that opens for potentially improving syndromic surveillance with being able to reach out to organizations that um, may not be participating in electronic information exchange today, but as a result of this data exchange framework might start. And if we're connected the right way, we might be able to get more information closer to real time instead of waiting for information to travel to the state surveillance system and then come back and be reflected to us. 
Commissioner Gerardo, I think you had a couple of questions. Um, hopefully I've answered the first one uh, about the scope of the data exchange framework. It really is all healthcare organizations, uh, both government, uh, nonprofit, and uh, private sector, um, as well as all of the state um, agencies. So uh, it knows no boundaries in the state. Um, and I think you also were curious about sort of the methodology. How might we exchange information as in its, and is it similar uh, to how we use uh, Epic's Care Everywhere tool, which allows all Epic EHR systems to talk with one another, as well as the two other frameworks that we use. One is called Care Equality, and the other one is called eHealth Exchange. And those are the tools that allow us to connect to all of the other healthcare systems and medical practices uh, across the country, as well as with federal entities like the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Department of Defense, Indian Health Service, and the Social Security Administration. So we do envision uh, leveraging uh, those pathways, and it would work, the system would work very similarly, where you don't have to uh, attend to the system for the information exchange to happen. It would be predetermined, and the information would just flow. And happy later on to, to take more questions um, on that. Uh, next slide, please. Okay. So before we dive into uh, what's happening with Behavioral Health Services and Epic, I wanted to provide a quick uh, language update because there's some good news, and I know this is always a front and center item uh, for your commission. Um, and we've had some uh, uh, new uh, releases of software, and I'm gonna share three specific areas where we see language access on the rise. The first one is with uh, the completion of our rollout of a tool in Epic called Welcome. And as uh, the name suggests, it is a tool that is often used when we're first interacting uh, with patients when they come in the door. Uh, it's used both in the inpatient setting, um, uh, very frequently for tools like collecting electronic um, uh, consent, electronic signature for consent forms, but it's also used in ambulatory settings to help with check-in processes, assessments and surveys, et cetera. Um, it's uh, usually completed on an iPad, uh, that's the tool that we use, and we've just finished rolling it out. The good news is, is that this tool is serving us across six languages, Chinese, English, Russian, Spanish, Tagalog, and Vietnamese. And so this has been a goal of ours, is to make sure that we could um, persuade uh, our EPIC provider, uh, along with many other healthcare organizations, to start thinking with these, you know, widely spoken languages in the United States and make them part of our EHR experience. So that tool's in place and those languages um, are available. The second item is how we text message clients. Most frequently this is the same type of text message that you probably receive the day before your appointment. Remember, you have an appointment tomorrow with such and such and so and so, um, and if you'd like to uh, click here, you can do an electronic check-in. Right now, we're in an interim platform that only supports English, Spanish, and Tagalog, but uh, we are wrapping up the contractual processes um, to implement uh, the Epic Systems text messaging solution, which is called Hello World. I'm not sure why it's called Hello World, uh, but that's what it's called, and that's what we're implementing. The good news there, again, all six languages, Chinese, English, Russian, Spanish, Tagalog, and Vietnamese will be offered on the, in those text messages. So again, decreasing the friction of the experience of having to perhaps have somebody else look at your phone and help you interpret um, uh, what's being asked, 
we're really trying to make sure that everywhere we go, we provide that language access. And last, but certainly not least, the, more, the most frequently used tool we have is Epic MyChart. Um, as many of you have commented, you use Epic MyChart yourselves. And for those of you who um, are treating providers, um, you're, you're seeing interactions with patients and clients using that tool. The good news is, um, since, since the dawn of uh, Epic in our environment, MyChart has only been available in English and Spanish. And in about a little le uh, less than a year from now, the Epic update we will implement will include simplified Chinese. So um, that this has been uh, a little bit of a mission that uh, Jeff Scarafria, our deputy CIO, and I have been on uh, sending notices and letters and requests and explaining um, um, how powerful a change this would be. And I think it opens the door uh, a little bit wider for Epic to start considering the rest of the languages that are important to us in San Francisco, as well as lots of other uh, languages across the country. Okay. So you are looking on your screen right now um, at a slide we shared last time, which is a reminder of the guiding principles for the EPIC BHS project. I'm pleased to announce that on June 20th, we launched a week, a, a kickoff week for the EPIC, EPIC BHS project um, in close partnership with Dr. Cunnins and her leadership team and Jenny Louie and her leadership team um, and we are off and running. Where we are, uh, next slide please. And please don't try and read all of this, it's very tiny print. Um, the point I wanna make is that there are four columns um, in this chart. Uh, before June 20th, we were pretty squarely in the first column to your left, which is a readiness state, where we were getting ready for all of the things uh, in some ways that aren't epic, making sure that if we needed to uh, create Wi-Fi networks in our clinics, and if we needed to tackle other readiness objectives, as well as securing all of the subject matter expertise and all of the leadership processes and the governance of this project, so we know who is gonna be making decisions, et cetera. Um, we did all of that work up and through uh, our kickoff week in June. We are now squarely in the second column from the left, which is called workflow walkthrough and configuration. These are fun terms that Epic likes to use, but basically what it means is we're starting to build the solution. We're starting to build what behavioral health services is going to see in Epic. And so that involves a lot of time from both subject matter experts in behavioral health services, as well as our Epic team and DPH, and the software experts at the Epic vendor. And that will take us through the fall. And then the final two phases of the work will involve a lot of system and network readiness and testing and adoption to make sure that what is being built is what's expected and that it all works. Um, you would be amazed at how much testing that we have to do. It takes uh, at least two or three months to wrap that up. And then as we move into early 2024, we'll be moving into our training and go live phase with a go live um, uh, plan for early April, 2024. So we're really excited and we're really glad that we have um, outstanding partners, both in the uh, behavioral health space, as well as in our finance organization, which, is, which isn't just finance, but it's also um, where our health information management function lives, which is the management of medical records. Okay, next slide, please. 
All right, this is the famous wheel or donut, and to be honest, I forgot which way we've been referring to it. So today I'm gonna go with wheel. Um, this is our budget wheel uh, that explains where we are with our spend against uh, the EPIC project budget. And where we are is roughly where we were the last time, which is we are projecting that we will be uh, a few percent um, underspent at the end of our 10-year project life cycle. Um, if you look at the wheel, you'll see the individual um, uh, uh, spend percentages uh, as you move clockwise. The first one you're gonna see is personnel expenses, then a very small sliver for work orders, and then the larger uh, and largest component are the non-personnel expenses. And that's where things like the EPIC contract costs are, as well as all of the subordinating agreements and supplies and other things that we're spending uh, that aren't salaries and benefits and aren't work orders. And in this case, what we mean by work order is sending another department in San Francisco money to help us uh, with a project. And for EPIC, that is mostly meant uh, working with the Department of Technology or the Department of Public Works and helping us with construction and cabling and things like that. Um, most of that was accomplished for the wave one um, uh, launch of EPIC. So we're not spending a whole lot in that area. Uh, Commissioner Chow, I know that, I think you had mentioned uh, uh, that you would like to know what the breakdowns of the actual spend have been over the last year. And so I'm gonna give you some statistics. Um, for the personnel spend, which is again, uh, tracking the blue uh, segment of the wheel uh, for fiscal year 22-23 was 18.5 million in personnel costs, so that's salary and benefits. For work orders, uh, it's a much smaller uh, amount. As I just mentioned, uh, we're not spending a whole lot there. Uh, $133,000 and change, most of that going to actually outfit um, uh, extended Wi-Fi services in the jails. And then finally, um, on the non-personnel, so as you come around the gray segment of the wheel, um, that's the largest spend, and that's relatively stable at this point because of the contracts are mostly uh, in, in a, a maintenance mode, except for the EPIC agreement, where if we add a new tool like EPIC Welcome, there's a little bump. But for the most part, um, it's a stable item, and that came in at just a shade under $22 million um, over the last fiscal year. Next slide, please. So I share this uh, quote with you because as I think we all know, there's a lot going on in our organization today and, and, and IT is uh, involved with a lot of the different components of the work. And so uh, we've adopted this, uh, this mantra, do what you can with what you've got where you are. Commonly attributed, attributed to Theodore Roosevelt was actually an acquaintance of his, uh, but we feel like you know, we're doing everything that we can. Um, and pouring our energies uh, squarely as they're needed across the organization. And I'm happy to take your questions. Thank you, Mr. Rathman. We're always excited when we see a go live on the calendar. So that's, that, that's a big thing. We're looking forward to that. Uh, do we have any public comment? Hi, uh, no one in the room. Uh, anyone online would like to make public comment? Please press star three now. I only see one person online. I do not see a hand. All right, Commissioner Gerardo. Thank you for pretty much answering my questions. My but I best. still would like, I still have a little bit more. Um, with the DXF information sharing, is there a cost uh, to the participating institutions like there is in CARE Everywhere? Great question. 
Um, and this actually came up in the policy and procedure group uh, at the state level uh, because it was absent uh, in the original, in the law, in the, in the statute. Uh, so the short answer is if we need to connect to a different uh, provider uh, for uh, exchange services, which is possible, uh, then yes, there could be a participation fee, okay. much like there is for uh, carry quality and for e-health exchange, yes because it, just one of my concerns, because for some uh, institutions that I deal with, the cost has been um, an impediment and so they don't participate. So that's one of that. My other question also on the information sharing, what about HIPAA? So the data exchange framework uh, statute and the policies and procedures and the dating sharing agreement were all built based off the federal TEFCA standard, which stands for Trusted Exchange Framework and Certificate Authority or Agreement. And it is completely aligned with HIPAA. And so uh, the data exchange framework obviously cannot supersede HIPAA in any way. Um, and it's only one of several uh, statutes. So a lot of what we expect to see with just other healthcare information sharing is very similar to what we see today, which follows the, the same rules. And I think you also had a question which I missed about uh, restrict, uh, restricting and protecting records. So certainly uh, 42 CFR Part 2 comes to mind. And yes, um, all of the EHRs out there have the ability to restrict those records. And providers can also individually uh, mark records as confidential. And, and when you set that up, you can stop those records from actually leaving your EHR and going anywhere. Yeah, that was my, my big question um, because I've had issues, I mean, with that, particularly with teenagers and um, when they have their own My Health Online yes. or whatever it is and parents, um, want their password and will uh, take away their phones, et cetera, unless the password is shared. So there's a real <laughs> concern. So, I mean, I've done my F92 and my, my, my notes, so they haven't been shared. So I, I just wanted to make sure that that's in there, but it's also um, kind of universally uh, communicated to the providers that that is possible. I think that it is in DPH, uh, and it's a locally controlled function. The data exchange framework, I should add, isn't actually an information system itself. It's really just, uh, think of it as scaffolding that allows organizations to use mostly existing pathways, but maybe redirecting them to organizations that they don't share with today. Um, we have extensive um, policy and procedure on the, on the like, uh, minor access yeah. to the EHR, and it is actually, that's actually the most complex scenario we have, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I was referring to as it rolls out with, within our BHS, is that there would yes. be. Yes, so the same, exactly. Where I the was same protections. protection. Yep, the same protections will be there. And that was actually a lot of part of that first phase of pre-work, was understanding all the regulatory requirements. We actually started working on the regulatory work for behavioral health services before 
start, before officially starting the project because we knew that we needed to get on top of that and, and working with, our, with Dr. Yu and his team of uh, physician informaticists and our nurse informaticists, um, I think we made a lot of great headway um, with the behavioral health services team. I think we're on, we're on solid footing. I don't mean to belabor, but just because I have to do this every day. <laughs> Back to, to the DXF, with certain institutions, let's say on Care Everywhere, um, when let's say I'm accessing Stanford Healthcare or whatever, I need to have a special um, access code. Is that going to be within this system in order to, you know, access? the other records is my question. So ideally, no. And the idea with the data exchange fr framework is to remove barriers to access between organizations that via HIPAA uh, are allowed to share information based on the treatment payment and operations models um, for information sharing that guide access, use, and disclosure of healthcare information. So the idea would be instead of you needing to log on to Epic CareLink to view Stanford records, and that and having worked in San Mateo County before, we had the same issue where uh, providers had to have individual logons. The idea here would be to hopefully avoid that uh, in its entirety. But to your earlier point about smaller healthcare organizations that today that may not uh, know either how to hop on the in the data exchange process, or also who also don't have the budget um, to participate in a large information uh, sharing framework, um, I think that that remains um, an outstanding issue. There is technical assistance money that's been made available to get over the initial bump. And there's grant making that's going on as we speak. It's going to be in at least three phases. We're in the second phase of, uh, of uh, the state uh, accepting uh, proposals for grant funds to help get over that hurdle. But then there is an annual, these are all subscriptions like a magazine basically to you subscribe to data exchange. Thank you very much. You're welcome. I have the same privacy uh, and HIPAA questions that Commissioner Drower did. And another question that I, I did not share in advance, so understandable if, if you don't have that answer, but through the Unite Us program where you're doing referrals to community-based resources, is there any kind of certification for those community-based resources that patients are being referred to? Are they community, are they county-funded uh, nonprofit partners, for example, or how, how do you, how does one ensure that the uh, resources that people are being referred to are credible? So I don't know the exact process that's used by these handful of companies across the country that support these community resource directories, but they do have a standard uh. um, for being uh, allowed into their network okay. of community-based organizations. They're, and they're, it's, it's no different than us participating in our own information exchange. I just don't know what those standards are, but we could certainly get them and follow up yeah, I'd be afterward. Interested. I'd be interested in that, thank you. Yeah, for United Us, sure. All right, uh, taking an order is Commissioner uh, Guillermo. Thank you, and thank you for your report. It's very interesting, and I think mostly good news uh, to, to hear. Uh, and um, when I think about, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago when the visions of access to health information uh, by uh, every individual uh, to their own medical record uh, and to information that would help with their well being and to be able to coordinate with their provider. Uh, uh, their own uh, sort of well-being. I think that this is where you know this, uh, particularly the, uh, the information exchange, 
big step forward and I'm glad to see San Francisco being a very active part and it seems a part of sort of a leadership uh, in California around that. So thank you very much. I did have a question though about the individuals uh, uh, that, um, or the every California part of the vision. Um, how does the framework, how does this framework um, allow for individuals uh, to be able to benefit from this on, on an individual basis or is it through their provider that they're gonna be able to, um, I think, benefit from uh, the DXF, DX? So certainly some of the benefit is already being uh, realized for anyone who, for instance, is using uh, the MyChart tool in Epic. Um, where I think uh, there's room to grow and, and which is why we're considering that we might need to connect with another more regional-ish local health information organization is because uh, the access then for the client would probably be a pretty low bar um, or, or no cost at all. Mm -hmm. um, most of the health information organizations, so health information organization is when we think about it, it's not necessarily, it's not a hospital, it's not a clinic, uh, it's usually a standalone organization. The only reason they exist is to bring together health information, then make it available uh, both to individuals and across these other big data sharing networks that we've been talking about this afternoon. And so while there's nothing written in stone yet, uh, as this program is coming together. Um, there is a lot written about how the ideal is to make sure that everyone who wants to have access can have access and not to make uh, the process prohibitively complicated or costly. Um, and the, the, the issue that we will, will face is will there be enough health information organizations to serve the state's needs? Because there are actually not that many of them. Um, these other frameworks we use for information exchange are vendor sponsored. And so they only connect systems together, but they don't connect individuals. So it'll be up to these, likely be up to these smaller health information organizations in the state uh, to provide that access um, to each Californian as they, as they want it. So that, I, I would imagine though, that that be an area uh, for some uh, concerted advocacy on the part of patient advocacy groups, as well as those who are uh, interested in empower, you know, sort of self-empowerment, particularly if it involves uh, uh, social services and human services information, uh, because most of the clients are going to come to, you know, um, sort of newly to being able to have that information available to them through some sort of provider. And the provider probably will also be new in being able to be part of an exchange like this. So I think any advocacy or leadership that you could provide at the state level with regard to being able to make sure that there is reasonable, affordable uh, uh, access to the information, I think would really, uh, in the long run, very much be helpful, uh, particularly to San Franciscans, but uh, throughout California. Uh, we'll so, carry that flag. <laughs> thank you, thank you. One, one uh, other question, uh, going to the um, uh, your last slide on the on the spending. Yes. Uh, it sort of does relate to everything else, though. But uh, in terms of the. Uh, uh, personnel costs, and by the way, congratulations on being under budget. So, or underspending, I guess, by that 3%. So, um, the, uh, the kind of personnel that we need to be able to implement uh, our participation within uh, the framework, this framework, as well as just sort of the expansion of 
uh, all of our data systems and information systems. Are we going to have any issues being able to recruit qualified personnel in order to be able to uh, uh, carry out all of these, this sort of marvelous vision of uh, uh, data exchange and cooperation between patients and their providers uh, for their own well-being? So I think we're well positioned now um, with the staff we have. I can tell you that um, the challenges that we spoke of at our last update um, about recruitment are still there. We, 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 we still have about a 15 to 20% somewhere in that uh, vacancy rate, uh, but we um, are meeting the needs. With regard to expanding like in this data exchange framework, um, there will likely be grant funds uh, that would be supplied to the health information organization uh, we would choose to partner with if we go that down that road. Um, and that would cover any additional um, uh, uh, bumps for implementation. As far as maintaining it, we wouldn't have a lot to maintain because we're, we're maintaining what we need to. By maintaining our electronic health work record system uh, and framework, that's all that we would really need uh, to do. Most of the rest of the work would be handled by that health information organization, as yet to be determined, uh, that we would partner with. They would actually be the brokers of the information and we would be a participant. Well, that's good to hear because I, I just, I, it, would, it would be a shame again uh, to have this vision and not be able to realize it for lack of resources, both human and, and financial. So glad to hear your optimism around that. I agree. I think this next big step for the state is to actually put the governing body together for the data exchange framework so we can move out of the planning mode and move into the get it done mode. That's what I'm looking forward to next. Thank you. Vice President Green. Yes, well, thank you for this um, positive report and also for taking that leadership role at the state and in particular advocating for our safety net patients and the language needs and so forth. Re really congratulate you and very reassured to know you'll continue to participate at such a high level. I, I had two questions. If, if I understand you right, a lot of what we're talking about is management of patients on an individual level and meeting individual needs. But as we look at data exchange across the state, um, what are the goals in terms of population health? In other words, if you get a certain amount of information, how can we develop best practices in areas such as you know, behavioral health and so forth? In other words, are there goals in terms of how the data that eventually will come together on a more global basis than local? Are there any goals or who's developing how we might use those data to create best practices for populations in general? And then a correlate question I had is, um, I know when Epic first started, Kaiser was instrumental in helping them write their software. And I'm wondering if, if there is any off the shelf or even any um, software that Epic has created already in the behavioral health space, or are we actually a pilot? In other words, are we really building this plane from scratch, or does Epic have any um, experience uh, to help us make sure that you know we efficiently um, uh, develop our our own programs, and and also you know if there have been uh, errors in the past that we can avoid them and have manpower as well as cost savings. Uh, good questions. Maybe I'll go in reverse order because I'll probably forget all of the parts of your first question. I might need you to repeat some of them. 
Um, with regard to how, we're, how we've been approaching the Behavioral Health Services Project, um, EPIC does have other customers that are doing community behavioral health. Most notably, on July 1st, Contra Costa County Health Services went live in their EPIC framework, and they've been on EPIC for, I think, at least a decade. So they have twice as much experience as we do, uh, and they have gone live. And so we're in very close contact, and actually we're sharing some of the EPIC resources who were part of the Contra Costa uh, build of their community behavioral health solution um, with us. Um, so actually we're looking forward to, to hopefully avoiding pitfalls um, as we move forward. Uh, the programs are relatively similar. Uh, we're just larger. So uh, I'm looking forward to uh, avoiding some of the, the struggles um, that we've seen. I know that Santa Clara County also uh, went through um, a pretty challenging uh, behavioral health services build out um, using both their uh, uh, existing system, just like us, the Avatar platform, um, as well as Epic. And so there were a lot of lessons learned, and that was several years ago. Um, so we're trying to do the best we can with um, the partners we know about, and Epic is bringing other resources to bear. Great to hear. Thank you. And can and we go back to your first yeah, question? It's, as, you, as there's data exchange and information comes toward the state from various sources across the state, are there plans to um, use those data to better understand mm -hmm. some of the challenges we face in population health? Great questions. Um, where, where we are now is that a lot of our strategic objectives in DPH are centered around having the data to increase how we manage, uh, effectively manage populations. And so I see part of my role is to find as much data as is relevant as I possibly can and then help create a space for that data so that experts, whether you're an epidemiologist or a data scientist or, or a population health leader uh, to be able to take advantage of that data. There are a lot of tools in EPIC uh, that can help us with that, but then we also make the data available for um, more powerful statistical tools uh, so we can conduct, uh, not necessarily my team conducting, but uh, folks in the population health division as well as within um, population behavioral health uh, as well. So we're, we're already in, we've already embarked on a number of projects based on some of the work that's just going on right now in San Francisco with a lot of the policy shifts um, and different types of uh, work that's going on around overdose uh, along with all of the uh, drug market activity um, and all of that work. We've actually been uh, bringing data together and joining it with other data. Like for instance, we bring behavioral health data and uh, homeless, homelessness data and all the medical record data in a data mart already um, so that more than one part of DPH can actually tap into those resources. We've also added uh, data from street overdose response and street medicine programs so that we can start to look at more of a complete person um, when we're looking at the data and then amp that up to a higher level when we're looking across populations that share similar situations or attributes. Well, thank you. Well, I hate, I hate, we hate to give you too many assignments, but at your level of the state, I hope you help them prioritize how as they gather more and more data, they thoughtfully prioritize. <laughs> Thanks. Commissioner Chow. Uh, yes, thank you. And, and, and thank you for this uh, 
uh, really exciting update uh, because I think it uh, continues to fulfill, and, and now we're, what, one, two, three, four, five, six years out of the 10 that we've all kind of envisioned. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, it's amazing that we're, um, you know, looking at our, our, our budgets as it is. And thank you for uh, the data and, and uh, staying within it. Um, I, I, um, well, when you mentioned human resources, let me start there, um, as, as being a sharing of, of uh, data, uh, then I get somewhat concerned as to uh, patient privacy. And while I know you talked about HIPAA, but we don't often share data with human resources in the broad, you know, definition of of, uh, of the human resource people. I mean, they they, they deal with, you know, uh, uh, you know, handing out monies and you know, providing other services. And, and I could see really, how does the PHI then actually work? I mean, so. So a patient may have certain information. They don't really want the uh, social worker to know completely. So if we're opening it up to, I'm not talking about the social worker in our system. I'm talking about, say, a social worker in Los Angeles or something like that. But if we're going to have an open system, how does the patient feel comfortable that all this data is being shared with uh, ultimately big government? That's a great question. Um, the, the, and my wife is a social worker, so we have this oh, discussion. Well, so it's fine. <laughs> we have a discussion like this frequently because she always says, you know, Eric, we don't have any of this information about how people are doing. We just know that somebody went to a medical appointment and that's it. And so I think what's going to happen uh, is that there's going to be a lot of community advocacy, which is what we need, um, and there's going to be a lot of attorneys who are going to help us uh, navigate this access, use, and disclosure set of questions uh, uh, that is how HIPAA governs the, uh, the sharing of information. Um, if we are able to say, um, uh, say that a human services agency in a county or perhaps one of their uh, CBOs that they're contracted with um, is part of our treatment or operations, um, then we would be able to construct sharing. But there are also a number of statutes that protect a lot of social welfare programs, um, uh, both at the federal and the state level, and those all still need to be navigated. Uh, the, the example I commonly use is the CalFresh program for SNAP uh, benefits. That is a very, very protected program. And it would so benefit um, healthcare providers to understand if a patient they're seeing is enrolled in that program. But I think there's a ways to go to understand if that can be made shareable. Um, unfortunately, I won't be making those decisions. If I could, I, I would be standing here and asking for your advice on how to proceed for sure. But um, I do think that those, that question is gonna come up frequently. Uh, and I, like I said, I'm really waiting for the state to say we're getting ready to get into implementation mode because that's when uh, we would engage, I think, around some of these really challenging questions about how to deal with human services data. Um, no different than if we were dealing with education data, which is also, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a HIPAA for education called FERPA, and it's actually stricter than HIPAA. So, uh, so, many, so many laws to deal with. <laughs> 
so it'd be nice if uh, you continue to update us on, on this whole privacy question and how people access it. So uh, I wanted to go back then to a question that was raised. How does a patient individually access his data and how far can it go? Like today in my chart, you have to go to the institution that it came from, right? And, uh, or at least I see a big list that says if you went to Stanford or you went to Mills Peninsula and whatnot, then you have to click into it in order to get your data. But uh, uh, how would a patient be able then to access this? This is the question of patients and uh, you know the, the patient access. So probably some of the same ways we do it today and perhaps a slightly different way um, going forward. So the way we do it today is, yes, the, the, the healthcare organization where you are um, affiliated uh, maintains a designated record set. Sorry, that's the, the terminology that's used. But that's all the information that that organization knows about you. And at any time, you can actually make a request to get all of it. Um, because my chart, it's very difficult for my chart to give you every single bit of information because you would never be able to navigate all of it, none, none of us, it was just too much information. But it is available to anyone today, and, that, and that's actually part of the uh, free, uh, release of information rules. Um, but what I see um, with data exchange framework, if implemented successfully, is that you would be able to go to uh, one of these health information organizations whose whole uh, reason for being is to provide access um, both to healthcare and hopefully human services providers, as well as individual Californians, access to everything that you can pull off the wire, if you will, which would mean not just the information that may reside where you're getting care today, but really it would be querying anywhere where you've received care. Um, and I don't know, and, and like a good question is, I don't know if like that will allow to be extended beyond the boundaries of the state of California. That may be actually very difficult to do, but it kind of makes sense that you would want to be able to get all of your information. Um, but that that hasn't that topic hasn't surfaced yet that I'm aware of. Uh, it will, um, because um, there will be there's already a significant amount of advocacy about how to provide that lowest bar that low friction experience for you to be able to get your information because it is your information right and and i think that all ties in partly with the whole hipaa issue and and, and mm -hmm. what people say you can or can't disclose and and that's why it'll be very interesting to keep uh, up to date on on uh exactly uh on on both sides how a provider reaches it and how patients can reach or patients can limit uh, uh the uh, only other question I, uh, well, it's not really a question. It's, it's kind of that uh, congratulation again on uh, the fact that we are pushing out to the uh, threshold languages, uh, which was something uh, I think a, a uh, um, well, when we all started this, right? And I remember uh, uh, talking to you a little bit about, about this probably at uh, SF General one day when you first came on to it as to how we were going to get there. And, and, and now you've really gone there. Uh, and, and so my comment only is that I am sure with uh, Dr. Yu and all, you have been careful to decide that you're going to use simplified Chinese. Uh, and um, I, I, I think the challenge there, and I've noticed that on uh, a number of different uh, platforms that have been trying to translate Chinese, that it's really quite complicated. In fact, I found one that actually also 
had instructions in three styles of Chinese. And Henry realized that they were using Cantonese along with Mandarin, which has a slightly different uh, uh, syntax and uh, manner in writing. And then the simplified, uh, you know, national. Uh, so, so you've chosen where the majority of the people live uh, in in the world using simplified Chinese today. But uh, here in the Bay Area, we still have a very large population that. Actually, I'm told by the older patients cannot read simplified Chinese. Mm. It, it's sort of interesting that they actually say, and, and these are people who are really knowledgeable in both Mandarin and Cantonese, that uh, it is difficult to read the simplified Chinese for them. And so uh, I, I, I think you might just be alert as to how that is going to be uh, interacting with uh, particularly, I think, the uh, at least the San Francisco-based population. While, while it is changing, more people are uh, using Mandarin, and more people certainly coming over are being, uh, you know, much more t uh, uh, into simplified, and they can't read the other. <laughs> so uh, it's it, it's something I'm not asking you to solve, but just to be aware, that, you know, all sides may really be complaining to you that they can't read it. And, and you, may, you need to make a selection as, as to which one. And I, I, I can see that even in the corporate world, each one's sort of individually making it. But I, I believe the city is still using uh, traditional Chinese for uh, like uh, voting uh, ballots and so forth, uh, whereas you know some other uh, certainly private agencies have been using simplified. So I don't you know I don't know what your logic was. It's a small issue perhaps for a lot of people, but you know a fair number of the uh, um, uh, health network people uh, are going to be looking forward to this language uh, accessibility, and I just point that out. I appreciate it. Yeah, it wasn't really our choice, unfortunately. Um, um, however, we're still going to maintain all the alternate ways, uh, such as uh, assigning a proxy in Epic MyChart. Like, none of those is going away. And obviously, the accessibility of interpreter services, that will actually be something that's coming into Epic as well. So we know that it is imperfect. Um, but again, it's a good reason for us to keep advocating with our uh, vendor community uh, to be mindful of all of these differences. Sure. Thank you. All right. Seeing no other comments or questions. Thanks for your uh, update. Always good to see you. And we look forward to the go live in February. February. April. 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 You'll hear from April. us in between, for sure. Well, let's, let's move it up a little bit. <laughs> uh, sure. No, pr no problem. <laughs> no, thank you again. Always all right. Uh, thank you for your presentation. All right. Um, our next item on the agenda is our DP, FY22 and 23 DPH annual gift report, and we are welcoming Drew Mural. Welcome. Afternoon. Our Thanks. DPH controller. Uh, thank you, commissioners. Uh, here with a summary report of gifts accepted and received by DPH over the last fiscal year. Mm -hmm. Uh, one note, these have all been accepted and received pursuant to San Francisco Administrative Code, so they've already been accepted. No action is required to be today. Um, highlights include uh, about three and a half million of gifts. The vast majority are state donations of test kits through the year. Um, and then another highlight of it, it's a new thing this year, is consistent with the Memorandum of Understanding approved by the Commission uh, back in May. 
We now are reporting a number of gifts from the Public Health Foundation in this report. Um, and that really brings us into alignment with controller's findings um, and the, the new MOU. So you have a full detail of the gifts there and happy to take any questions. Um, Thank you. Uh, Secretary Moore, let's do a public comment. Uh, folks, on the, well, person on the line, if you'd like to make comment on item seven, please let us know by pressing star three. No, there's no hand. Commissioners. Commissioner, uh, Commissioner Chow. Oh, <coughs> yes, I, I uh, want to thank you for this uh, gift report because it's really very extensive and, and very interesting. Um, does this incorporate the Laguna Honda gift fund or is that a separate report? It does. So anywhere where gifts are received, if gifts are above 25000 and for the direction of, for the patients, those are accepted separately and not reported in this. Oh. But for the gifts received individually less than 25000 which is the majority, those are reported in here. Ah, I, I see. So, so, so the... the uh, but you have the donations uh, in kind that are on here that are larger than 25000 So Great catch. So those have all been accepted pursuant to Mayor's Declaration 9 under COVID that waived the threshold for gifts to require board approval if it's above 25000 and related to COVID. So you'll see all of those were donations of COVID good test kits from a state entity usually, often also the DLA uh, troop donation. So COVID goods have an exception via mayoral declaration. Okay. So, so, so if it's, if it's uh, as you say, I think uh, the next time that you uh, let us uh, see this, that you might note that uh, these are for those that are under twenty-five thousand, and that the remainder have been, you know, uh, looked at already. Of course. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Commissioners, any other questions? All right. Thank you for the report. Thank you. Okay. Our next item on the agenda is. The Health Code 38 Enhanced Ventilation Rules and Regulations. Uh, for this, we welcome our environment from our environmental health branch, Jonathan Piakas. Welcome. Thank you. All right. Good afternoon, commissioners, and thank you for taking the time to um, have us here today. Um, I'm Jonathan Piakis, Senior Industrial Hygienist uh, with the Environmental Health Branch. I've been with the department just about 10 years now, and uh, for the majority of that time was involved with Article, Health Code Article 38, which we're uh, here to discuss today. A um, couple of quick uh, notes on this before, before we get started. Um, the rules and regulations for Health Code Article 38 that we're going to be talking about today do not require a, a formal vote, but are being shared um, as important information basically to demonstrate one of the many ways that DPH is protecting vulnerable populations. Um, one other thing to note on the timeline here, these uh, rules and regulations were originally drafted in January of 2020 and slated to be presented at the uh, Health Commission shortly uh, after that time. Those plans were derailed a little bit by the pandemic, obviously, um, so the rules and regulations were put on hold until this year. 
Um, but I can say that we are now very excited to finally uh, be here and presenting this today. We've been waiting a long time for it, so very, very happy to be here. Uh, next slide, please. All right, so quickly just to go over the, the orientation of where we fall in the organizational structure of uh, DPH. So the Environmental Health Branch is under the Population Health Division, and we are acting as the enforcement arm of the health department that uh, enforces a variety of local laws and health codes. Uh, next slide, please. Um, so this is that smaller box that was circled, broke down quite a bit on how the environmental health branch is structured. Um, we are structured and kind of organized by program into uh, various different programs, each with different enforcement authorities uh, for the health codes. The Article 38 program, um, which we'll be discussing today, is currently under the supervision of our assistant director, Jennifer Callowert, who couldn't be here uh, to present today. Um, but I am here in her place, and um, we currently actually have a vacancy in the principal inspector that would be overseeing this program, but I can assure you uh, the program is in very good hands uh, with, our, with our assistant director who has been involved with it since it was uh, originally, uh, or its original inception in, in 2008. Uh, next slide, please. All right, quick overview on what we're going to cover today. So we'll go over a background on Health Code Article 38, um, we'll talk about something called the Air Pollutant Exposure Zone, how that started and how that has grown to what it is today over time. Um, we'll obviously talk about the rules and regulations, uh, which were just slightly uh, amended um, to clarify and more of a administrative cleanup that um, actually resulted from a lot of our community feedback and engagement that, that we've done with them. Um, and then we'll talk about that community engagement and public comment process that, that we've gone through uh, numerous times now with how Article 38 has grown. Um, next slide, please. All right, so Health Code Article 38. What is it and how does it help us uh, protect the public? So Article 38 requires new sensitive use buildings to include an enhanced ventilation system that sufficiently removes harmful fine particles from the air and prevents them from going from outside and reaching our sensitive use populations inside these new buildings. Um, it does this by requiring that a enhanced ventilation system meets certain design criteria that are equivalent to what we call a MERV 13 rated filter. Filters are rated on a MERV scale. Um, the MERV 13 part of it is simply a, a highly efficient uh, filter. So basically highly, high efficiency in the, in the filter word means that it removes more and finer particulates than just standard building filters. Um, there's also other design criteria which we'll get into, which includes using positive pressure to ensure that any of that unfiltered air stays out of the buildings. Um, we do this through um, the thing that we have called the APES, or the Air Pollutant Exposure Zone map that we have developed. Um, one thing to note is that not only Article 38 uses the Air Pollutant Exposure Zone map, um, there are other codes and other city agencies that also use this map. A couple of examples are, are um, in front of you today. So the Environmental Code um, uses the Air Pollutant Exposure Zone to determine which public work projects will need to include only the cleanest construction equipment 
available in their projects. In addition, the planning department uses the air pollutant exposure zone map um, when they are performing environmental review under CEQA or the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, next slide, please. Let's back up a little bit to 2008. 2008 is when Article 38 was first enacted into law. Um, at that time, the law included the specific ventilation filter requirements and design criteria that projects needed to comply with to be considered compliant with Article 38. Basically, it's those design standards that were developed um, through a number bunch of outreach, um, a bunch of subject matter experts that we worked with, so we could ensure that those populations were adequately protected. Um, at the time, that applied only to new residential buildings of 10 units or more. This is back in, in 2008. Um, the air pollutant exposure zone was not always the lovely air pollutant exposure zone that we know it was today. In fact, it wasn't even called that at first. It's called the Potential Roadway Exposure Map, which is there before you today. This map um, was very, very different. It basically only took in the available data that we have, which was vehicle counts on roads to create this map. This map wasn't used in the same way either. It was more of a screening tool. Um, that said, if you have a project that is in the screening map, that project would actually have to go through and perform additional site-specific, parcel-specific air quality, quality modeling to determine if you needed to comply with Article 38. Um, it was quite a laborious process that put a lot of um, the requirements and the, and the hard lifting on the development community, um, and it is one of the many lessons we learned, which I'll get into um, in, in a little bit as well. Next slide, please. On that note, we value um, continuous improvement and equity in the health department, as you know, and um, with Article 38, we're early adopters of both. 2014, we had about six years with the, with the program, we learned quite a bit. Um, we learned it through experience of our own of implementing the law and also from getting feedback from the development community, community organizations. Um, and at that time, we felt prepared to introduce amendments to the code that would really help us protect populations better than we were doing it. So valuing that continuous improvement, how can we improve on it? How can we better protect people and protect people that may not have been protected as the law was uh, originally written. So um, a couple of the things that we saw, um, we needed, not all were protected equally under this law, and we needed to make sure um, that it was done in an equitable way to reach all of the, the population. So in that, we needed to include additional sensitive uses um, into, the, into the code, which included child cares, schools, daycares, adult daycares, rehabilitation centers, and any licensed healthcare facility, or really any building associated with a licensed healthcare facility. Again, 2008, residential buildings, only greater than 10 units. That greater than 10 units also presented a, a problem for us, um, and we moved to remove that unit threshold. Um, quite frankly, it didn't quite make sense to us while 
someone would be protected in an 11-unit building next to the freeway while the building next to it was a three-unit building and they weren't offered that same protection. So we learned that and we moved to improve upon that um, in reducing that um, threshold. Um, let's see, we also heard quite a bit from the developers that there were some things that they were struggling with. Um, mostly that doing that site-specific air quality modeling. They would go out and hire a consultant to do that and submit a report to us. The air quality modeling that was done by the consultants was not always consistent, and we saw that as well. In addition, it was very time-intensive on the, on the developer's end and cost them additional money that we felt like we could improve on that, on that process quite a bit. Um, instead of putting that onus on the developers, which again, time and money, um, we decided we can take that on as the city. We partnered with the California Air Resources Board, um, Bay Area Air Quality Management District, and a number of other um, experts, and we decided we'll just go ahead and model the entire city in accordance with the best available criteria from the state, and that is what we did. And I'll show you the map in a, in a second that um, all of these efforts kind of paid off in, in doing that. It also was um, a cost savings for, for developers. We know how uh, expensive it can be to develop a building and if we can um, improve upon that um, and make housing more affordable, that's always a, always a good thing. Um, we also uh, clarified in the code which projects need to comply with the code. So it wasn't just new buildings that were being built. There was a stipulation put in for anything undergoing um, what is defined as a major renovation in accordance with the green building code. Um, that definition, they would also have to comply with Article 38 and put in that enhanced ventilation system. And a, a big one was any planning department permitted change of use. So what does that mean? That means if you have a ground floor um, commercial use in a building and um, that was being developed into a daycare, that necessarily wouldn't have been caught originally. Now doing this with the planning department change of use, we would review those um, projects specifically and it would be required to comply and, and have that enhanced ventilation for a sensitive use like a daycare that was going into a space that wasn't originally a sensitive use. Um, through these uh, code changes in, in 2014, which I, I should mention, those were actual code changes. Obviously today we're not talking about code changes, we're just um, clarifying the, the rules and regulations, so a, a little bit differently. But um, we started our one of our largest stakeholder engagement uh, processes. Um, it took a total of six to nine months. Um, we ended up working with numerous neighborhood uh, organizations and community benefit groups. Um, we visited multiple commissions and committees. We met with different groups of developers, um, local in San Francisco mechanical engineers and those around in the surrounding Bay Area that still do work in San Francisco. Um, we met with all of the building departments that had a step in the permitting process to ensure that it was a, a smooth uh, transition and to shave off any time we could in, the, in that process. Um, and also met with a, a number of building associations, um, the Small Builders Association, um, to ensure that not only the large developments were, uh, we had feedback from them, but that we got them from the mid-rise and the low-rise buildings uh, as well. 
Um, next slide, please. And this is what we, we came out with. This was the now famous Air Pollutant Exposure Zone, or APES. It was the, the first version of that in 2014. Um, it identified the areas where our modeling, and that's the modeling with the best available technology, indicated that there could be higher levels of air pollutants. Um, and that was established in the rules and regs and the criteria within uh, the code at the time. Um, also, with these amendments, there was a requirement to update the air pollutant exposure zone at least every five years. Um, it's important to note that we also, with the equity lens, we included at that time what we call health vulnerable locations. So these were locations um, in the city where we identified them as a health vulnerable location for five zip codes. We looked at a bunch of data that included um, hospitalization records for respiratory and cardiovascular uh, morbidity and mortality. Um, we identified those with all of the um, zip codes in, in the city, um, and the ones that were considered health vulnerable were the top five of those. So those were areas like um, Civic Center, Tenderloin, Soma, um, Bayview, Hunters Point, Treasure Island. What those health vulnerable locations allowed us to do was slightly reduce the threshold um, for the modeling that would be uh, included in the air pollutant exposure zone. And again, with an equitable lens, it helped us ensure that those health vulnerable locations were properly and adequately protected. Um, next slide, please. Uh, fast forward a little bit to, to 2020. Um, as I said, uh, part of what we put in the code was that we had to update the map um, at least five years. We started that in 2019 and it resulted in the 2020 um, air pollutant exposure zone map that we are currently using um, in front of you today. You will, um, you will notice that there are significant changes in this zone as opposed to the 2014 zone. You might be asking yourself why that is. That would be a good question. Um, the significant changes um, were due to some um, significantly more restrictive emission factors that um, were assigned at the state level. So when we went through and did the air quality modeling, we had to apply these new emission factors um, to the modeling. And again, that's part of why we wanted to include these five-year updates, including the best available technology that, that we have. Um, in addition, we were able to identify other sources of potential pollution that we could include in the model. So in 2008, and 2014, we included some more. Obviously, the most is from vehicle traffic. Um, we were also able to include in this stationary sources, permitted stationary sources that the Bay Area Air Quality Management District has a database of. Um, we included those in there, and for the first time, we were able to include maritime sources. So thank you ferries and ships and, and all of that. Um, that also contributed to the slightly expanded air pollutant exposure zone um, that we are using today. All right, next slide, please. Um, so we continued our community engagement efforts in, in 2020, uh, 2019 and 2020. Um, that similar to what we did in, in 2014, one of the um, comments that we received from the development community um, was that they didn't have an easy way to look up if their parcel that they're considering developing is included in the map. I showed you the map previously. 
it's hard to get down to a granular level if you're looking for one, almost like a needle in a haystack, right? One little parcel, is that in that little blue zone, is that not? So we worked with our partners at the planning department um, and they included a layer in the property information map where anyone, it could be a developer, it could be a community member, it could be, <coughs> you could do it on your phone today if you would like. You can go to the property information map, put in an address or a parcel, um, go to the environmental information map and overlay the 2020 or even the 2014 map to see if that specific parcel is included in there. Um, the feedback from the development community is they understand why we're doing this. They also want to help protect um, the, the vulnerable populations, um, but they just need to know about these requirements as early in the process as possible. So if they're thinking of potentially um, developing a, or a parcel, they can go there and know everything that is going to be required. So one of our uh, large continuous improvement efforts um, that really shows why our community engagement process was so robust and beneficial in the, in the long term. Um, next slide, please. Part of the other thing that we've heard from um, some community members and the development community is they wanted some further clarification, which brings us to what we were here uh, originally to talk about today, and that's the, the rules and regulations um, that we uh, have slightly amended for, for these purposes. It's a lot of administrative um, cleanup and mostly clarification um, on how we do certain things. We do have a whole, um, report of exactly how um, everything was developed. It is called the Health Risk Assessment um, Technical Support Document. It is very technical, very technical. So we don't expect people to be able to um, read through the 30 or so pages that was developed with the modelers from the Air Quality Management District. Um, we don't even expect the developers to, to go through that, but the rules and regulations are one tool we, we can have that to help clarify everything. So specifically, what were the criteria for creating the air pollutant exposure zone and how we develop those health vulnerable locations? If additional information is needed, we do have our very technical document that can be referred to as well. Um, we also wanted to include the performance standards for the enhanced ventilation. Um, I mentioned the MERV 13 filtration uh, before and that high efficiency filter that must be um, introduced into those enhanced ventilation systems. But there's also other tools that can be used to, to guarantee that, like maintaining positive pressure um, in relation to maybe some hallways that are not filtered or something like that. So we're including a, a number of um, criteria and clarification on those tools that are available um, and have been successfully put in place um, before. Um, it also includes a, a number of um, certification and licensing requirements that are built out a, a little more on who is able to create these systems, um, which can be done for smaller projects by an architect or larger projects um, by a licensed mechanical engineer. Um, there's also some definitions that were needed to be clarified that weren't defined in the, in the code. Again, we're not changing anything in the code, but just hoping to clarify and get everything a little more uh, understood. Um, also the clarification on what properties need to comply, which you know has changed since the original in, in 2008. So we just wanna be um, very clear on that. And then finally, what is required not only to design the enhanced ventilation system, but also to maintain the enhanced ventilation system. We wanna be sure while we approve it, 
and five years down the line that it's still going to offer that same protection. So there are some um, disclosure requirements and um, some maintenance uh, criteria that, that developers and those that are inheriting the building have to um, comply with as well. Um, we are currently undergoing an additional 30-day public re review period. This is a, a voluntary um, thing that we wanted to do. Again, we did our uh, community engagement um, efforts um, like we did in 2014, pre-pandemic, but again, it was pre-pandemic and it's been a little bit. So um, we do want to just remind um, all of our stakeholders that these are the rules and regulations that we drafted um, and invite them to um, give us additional public comment. Um, we are just about smack dab in the middle of that 30-day public uh, comment period and we have not received any additional um, comment or, or feedback yet. So, um, That is all I have for you today. I'm happy to, and I know that's a lot, of, you've heard a lot of information today and that was a lot more information. So happy to um, entertain any, any questions. Hopefully I can answer them uh, in the best way possible. Thank you. Uh, we'll go to public comment first. Hi, person on the line. Uh, please let us know if you'd like to make public comment on item eight by pressing star three. No hand, commissioners. All right. First of all, I appreciate that for the property information map, you used our building. So <laughs> thank you for that good information that maybe some of us didn't know. Uh, commissioners, do you have any comments or questions? Uh, Vice President Green. Well, this was really interesting. Thank you so much. And I was wondering how often you revisit these air pollution zones and how you're going to incorporate what hopefully will be achieving the 2030 goal, which is not that far away from the California um, Air uh, Resources Board of cutting the emissions down, uh, I think, what is it, 40% below 1990. And then in addition, on the opposite end of that, what about climate change? And how will you incorporate um, the projections there in, in, into your decisions, your models, and your timing? Yeah, so the, the good thing is that we have the experts to rely on with the California Air Resources Board and the Bay Area Air Quality Management District. So in reality, we only update it every five years, but in between those five-year periods, we're staying in close communication with all of those experts to give us a heads up of what is coming down the pipeline as far as additional sources to add to the map maybe or additional restrictions on those emission factors like we saw in, in 2020. But this is kind of independent of all of the other efforts um, that are there to reduce pollution in, in general. So this is kind of on, on the back end of protecting people when that pollution is, is already kind of happening or, or those sources are there. So our idea and the goal of this uh, program from the, the inception was to have this map and actually have it work in conjunction with all of those control efforts to reduce um, pollution in general and make you know cleaner available technology, which we've seen with vehicles, stationary sources, all of those other things. So our idea and what we're hoping for is that air pollutant exposure zone to shrink up um, as everything else becomes a little bit cleaner. Obviously, we took a step in the other direction when the emission factors were more restrictive, but that's okay. Um, that's just a, a, you know, a bump in, in the road, and that's something that we know is okay because if we want to have that best available technology for the air quality modeling, protect more people, but as that is more well established now, we do want to see that air pollutant exposure zone to shrink, which would be indicative of all the other efforts from the health department, from the Air Resources Board, from the Bay Area Air Quality Management District, 
uh, the planning department, all of them that are um, included in that. We'd love to see that shrink over time. So. Well, thank you. And I was also impressed by the flexibility and willingness of your group to seriously consider the input of a whole variety of stakeholders and to adjust all your rules and regulations in, with, in such a thoughtful way. So I, it's, it's really exemplary of an organization that listens to the public and listens to um, everyone that's involved in a really complex uh, decision tree. So thank you. I appreciate that. It's something we're actually very, very proud of, our, our community engagement efforts. It did feel at, at some time like we we're part of like a band uh, concert touring or something with how many different groups we were meeting up with over that six to nine month process. Um, but it was, it was, yeah, it was definitely well worth it. Um, and I think they appreciate it as well. Thank you. Commissioner Guillermo. Uh, thank you. Uh, Commissioner Green asked uh, pretty much my questions. I just want to make an additional comment and, and thank you for the report. And this is actually very informative and uh, really sort of gives uh, me an appreciation of the other parts of the department uh, that we don't get to hear from and how well uh, our, you know, at least San Francisco is being protected by the whole range of things that the department uh, is responsible for. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Commissioner Chow. Yes, uh, no, I wanted to thank you. Uh, I uh, found the maps very uh, exciting. <laughs> and I kept looking to see where, where my house was. <laughs> uh, well, luckily we have the website now, so you can zoom right in on it <laughs> on the parcel. Now, now it, it looks like it's ending up at Diamond Heights, which doesn't have any, any lines right now. That must be all the, uh, all the wind we get. Mm. But, um, I was actually wondering, and, and I'd asked Dr. Bubba probably, um, how we are integrating all this information into our population health, and then how does that also help inform? I, I'm sure you're all using it. I think it would be very interesting to hear that you know the department is using the information from all of their units and of course environmental health is one that's really always uh, I've always been very interested in uh, ever since you were looking at the chickens in Chinatown uh, <laughs> that uh, has uh, really realized that it affects people and our chickens <laughs> but uh, uh, they slaughtered them somewhere else but uh, how, how do we integrate all of this? How, uh, is it that environmental health also presents over at population health or you send the data over or we make programs that are worked around uh, because like, you know, there's a lot of cancer information here and so forth. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I think um, just saying in terms of um, this report specifically, um, it's been, I think, really important to see what environmental health can provide. And then um, just tying this back to, because MERV 13 triggers a lot of things in me. One is, um, you know, the wildfires and the smoke that we get from that. It, the recommendation is to have MERV 13 um, grade as well as with COVID. That was another recommendation. So there's, as you can see, there's so much overlap around this work when you start protecting health that has other benefits to it. Um, in terms of, um, you know, the, the work in here around the potential for cancer risk and other things, um, I, ha I would have to defer to environmental health or others of how that gets shared out um, and if it is incorporated in other ways. But I know um, that's something that is particularly important to the community, as well as, as you know, asthma rates and other things that um, occur with pollution. Um, so I don't know, Jonathan, if, if you have an answer or if um, we should take that back and come back. Yeah, we, we do work with um, all the other groups and, and 
one good example is the, the health vulnerable locations. That wouldn't have been possible for us to gather and then really pour over all of that data um, to identify where these health vulnerable locations were so we can equitably create that slightly lower threshold for them. Um, so we worked with you know our data team in um, population health division in addition to other branches within the health department to gather that hospitalization and mortality and morbidity data um, to, to do that. We've also, speaking of the, the wildfires, we, we work with the team that was wor working on that to identify where are there, you know, these potential clean air places that people may be able to go if we have a very, you know, large event, wildfire event. Um, so we did be able, we were able to provide that data of, hey, these are the approved areas or buildings or parcels that have these enhanced ventilation systems that we were able to approve and, and they were built. And some of them are, um, you know, community centers. Some of them are libraries that we were able to enhance their, their systems quite a bit. So the sharing of the data goes kind of both ways. Um, and I think having that communication between all the groups within um, Population Health Division and within the Health Department has been really key in identifying these things that come up like a wildfire response where we need to potentially identify these these areas of, of respite or, or safe air. So. so I think one day it would be uh, interesting when uh, the uh, 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 Health Network presents to be able to tie this type of information also into it just as saying that, you know, it sounds like they might have actually helped inform this. And then on the other hand, this information might lead to some programs uh, or, you know, community type outreach, which they've already been having. And uh, just to see how everything is really tying together and uh, working together. So that, that was, uh, uh, again, to thank you uh, for uh, really the extensive work. While you might think this is a very technical document, it really, uh, I think shows uh, the depth of work that we're all doing here and really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Commissioners, other questions or comments? All right. Thank you very much, Mr. Peter. Thank you. Our next item for discussion is the Finance and Planning Committee update. Uh, who will be giving, uh, Commissioner Chow, I believe, will be giving the update. Yes, th yes. Uh, thank you, uh, Commissioner Chung was uh, not able to uh, chair uh, or be in attendance, and so I was asked to uh, try to uh, hold the fort here. And it was actually a very uh, interesting meeting. And uh, uh, the uh, contracts, you, you actually have the details on them from the dollar amounts. And I think what was uh, very important was that these were all really related to uh, types of services that we are all doing today. So I'll just describe, there are eight uh, continuing or new contracts of services that are uh, being discontinued. The first, which was number one and number three, which is from Haluna Health, actually is an administrator for services that uh, relate to HIV and, and to uh, STD and to COVID. And they are the administration uh, arm that helps uh, work with subcontractors and all to deliver these very important services. Item two was actually uh, the hospice care from uh, um, Matria. I, I think is that the correct pronunciation of Matria? Uh, maybe uh, Commissioner Guillermo remembers how, how we pronounce that. Yeah, 
Yeah, Maytree uh, AIDS Hospice, uh, so well known for so many years. And this is a renewal of their contract. Uh, this renews it for, uh, or extends it for three years. And, and the first uh, item that we spoke about for the Helena Health uh, Administrative Contract uh, extends their administration of HIV and STD uh, services for one year. Uh, item number four is from Mission Neighborhood, uh, another well-known agency uh, of ours. Uh, this is an extension uh, up to 10 years. Um, they were given a four-year contract. Uh, it's a good time to remind us that uh, the Commission's policy has been that while we uh, 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 will grant a uh, contract for up to 10 years. We'd like to see it sort of in mid-contract uh, to see that uh, the services are being rendered and, and therefore this is sort of one of those contracts then that says that they've been doing a good job. Again, they have a center for uh, AIDS and uh, uh, taking care of their clients and uh, this is a six-year extension. Uh, Item number five is Canyon um, Manor, which is in uh, Novato. Novato, was it? Yeah, Novato. Yeah, thank you. I, I was thinking of Napa or Novato. Just want to get it correct. This actually is a, a mental health uh, uh, unit that uh, is taking care of the uh, very uh, vulnerable and uh, very difficult patients we have. Uh, we have about eight to 10 patients there in their 89 uh, bed wards, uh, uh, bed uh, facility. Um, we were asking because these sounded like patients that we could use a lot more beds for that uh, we have here, uh, that w whether we could get more. And they said that actually it is uh, a competition throughout the state to be able to place these patients. And uh, in, in fact, when, when we uh, have one of our patients uh, be able to be discharged. We want to quickly use that. We cannot uh, uh, block in patients there because that could have helped our city. Uh, so uh, it is a contract. We want to uh, recommend approval also. Um, item number six is from UCSF and does uh, a vouchers for veggies for um, the uh, homeless and vulnerable population. Uh, this is uh, new, um, well, they've been doing vouchers, but this will be under the new uh, San Francisco Health Plan PIP program, uh, and it's part of the, uh, um, that is the performance improvement program that brings in some uh, extra dollars for quality of work. Uh, and this isn't just for San Francisco Health Plan members, but for any members in our community. So um, it's funding from the health plan that uh, allows us to do that. Item number seven is the uh, Ward uh, for, uh, 86 contract for uh, uh, UCSF Professional Services. And we all know about the HIV, uh, um, um, the, um, uh, certainly the uh, innovative uh, way Ward 86 uh, was uh, uh, started. And, and this is a continuation of that. Uh, and item number eight on the contracts report is Horizons. This is a uh, extension for two years, uh, and uh, it is uh, taking care of uh, uh, primary preventive services for uh, issues of use, uh, substance use uh, in uh, youth, including elementary and middle schools. So uh, those are the contracts. There was a new contract for uh, housing for uh, uh, both uh, uh, the, um, uh, for COVID and for 
the um, uh, alcohol. Manage alcohol, is okay. that? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to get the exact name of it. Uh, for those who are, um, you know, needing uh, a home for respite, it is actually renting uh, 587 Eddy Street uh, with approximately 31 rooms. And uh, several of the rooms will be used for administration of the program. But the uh, total cost is actually uh, quite uh, extensive, about $100,000 a month. Uh, but uh, it is placement at the, um, of a uh, very vulnerable population. And the work that they have done, they've actually uh, been uh, uh, tracking their data so that while um, this is expensive, it may actually be cost effective because they've actually reduced the use of the ED uh, for the patients, uh, for the residents that are there uh, by fourfold. And uh, in alcohol sobering programs uh, also, uh, they have been also able to reduce by twofold um, getting to uh, the hospital, uh, being out, well, by twofold being hospitalized. So uh, it uh, appears to be a very effective program. Uh, they would like to look for a, um, a, a more uh, economical facility, but at the moment, uh, while uh, they're doing that, they were asking for a one, I believe it's a one year contract, uh, approximately one year. I'm, I'm looking for it now. There was a, uh, here it is. It's called HTL 587, and that's because it's 587 Eddy Street. <laughs> and uh, um, for uh, 31 beds, and uh, while it says rooms and services, uh, those actually are probably uh, the uh, services of the hotel. They're definitely not our uh, services because our services are actually uh, paid separately and uh, the uh, medical support services are different. So, so uh, uh, we do recommend that uh, that be continued. Uh, there is, uh, uh, actually it's a 10 month with an option to extend another 10 month. But meanwhile, the department is looking at more uh, economical uh, options. Uh, but it's very important to have these people continue to have housing. So uh, therefore, uh, that is the contracts report. Uh, we did see a, a report on sole source that I think you all have had uh, an opportunity to review. Turns out that there are two different chapters Chapter 6724 is called the Sunshine Ordinance. I think uh, you were all distributed uh, the um, breakdown that we had asked for. Uh, and, and those are really professional source contracts uh, and commodities. So for example, uh, you know, if uh, uh, you were doing proprietary software licensing, they fall under that category and, and I think uh, uh, Michelle has put together a very nice summary of what these uh, different uh, uh, types of uh, contracts are. Uh, then meanwhile, uh, the, uh, and, and the new uh, report uh, also then looks at not just a new sole source, but if we modified a sole source, then that had to be reported. That was sort of new for the year. Um, a new chapter also, uh, was uh, on sole source grant agreements, but these are not really grant agreements, they're really contracts. Uh, 
the term grant agreements is what's used in the ordinance. And uh, there you see also uh, very nicely written the types of uh, agreements that these would be either their exemptions because it wasn't uh, a waiver wasn't required from the health commission because it was uh, already designated uh, say a board of supervisors uh, contract uh, putting monies back into a community uh, agency and and then there are those sole source grant agreements uh, you all passed a uh, list of the sole source uh, organizations that would be uh, eligible a and you can see that in fiscal year 22-23 uh, we actually only uh, used the sole source agreement uh, under that uh, category eight times three are for those uh, where solicitation was not feasible uh, might have been a new initiative just coming up and would be uh, uh, you know put out to bid in the future but to get it started or uh, that there was a time gap and as you know then uh, we therefore were able to fund while uh, getting out a new RFP or something like that. In the back are sort of the uh, over, uh, uh, overall values, but the values are not annual because many of these terms extend more than one year. So uh, we did ask uh, to see if we could look at what might be the percent of sole source that was used for nonprofit contracts, which is really what the public was most concerned about. So um, that was uh, uh, our uh, a recipient receiving the sole source reports. Uh, uh, I don't know if Commissioner Guillermo has more to add. No, you did a great job. <laughs> uh, or if anybody has any questions from any of the data. First, we'll take public comment. Uh, First on the line, we're on item nine, the Finance and Planning Committee report back. Please let us know if you'd like to make comment by pressing star three. No hand, commissioners. All right, commissioners, any comments or questions? All right, thank you, Commissioner Chow, for that thorough report. And we'll move on to a related item, which is the consent calendar, which you already described. I believe we can take these all as one motion for approval. Do we have a motion? So move. Second. Second. And if I may check public comment real quickly. Uh, person online, if you'd like to make comment on item 10, it's the consent calendar, press star three. No hand, commissioners. All right, uh, uh, any uh, commissioner comments, discussion? Nope, uh, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Motion passes. Consent calendar is approved. Our next item is a joint conference committee and other committee reports. Back to Commissioner Chow for the ZSFG JCC report. On the uh, JCC met on July 25th. Uh, we were introduced actually formally to our new chief of staff, Dr. Gabriel Ortiz, who presented the medical staff report. He actually uh, gave a very uh, stirring uh, personal history of how he became uh, a physician and at uh, San Francisco General. Um, we then also uh, discussed a robust and data-driven presentation on the hospital's true north for access and flow and uh, discussed standard reports, including the regulatory affairs report, CEO report, and human resources report. Uh, in the closed session, we approved the credentials report and the PIPs minutes report. All right. Any public comment on this item? Person on the line, we're on item 11. Please press star three if you'd like to make comment. 
No hand. Commissioner's comments or questions? All right. Thank you, Commissioner Chow. Our next business item is other business. Seeing none, do we have any public comment? Uh, please press star three if you'd like to make comment on item 12, other business. No hand. Okay, we're on to the last item, which is adjournment. Do we have a motion to adjourn? So move. Is there a second? Second. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Opposed? We're adjourned. Thank you. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for the, the, uh, the SFGov TV folks. Secretary Morowitz. SFGov TV. San Francisco Government Television. <laughs>